welcome to the Kicks EAP podcast, your monthly podcast with important leaders in education from Eastern Europe, Middle East and North Africa, Central Asia, and the Asia Pacific. I'm your host, Ryan Allen, assistant professor at Chapman University here in Southern California, and my own background is in international and comparative education. Let's start the show. Today, we have Dr. Bal Chandra Luitel, professor at Kathmandu University School of Education. And Dr. Luitel works with math teachers and other educators to develop transformative educational practices. We talk about his start in the math field, his interdisciplinary approach and research, and the barriers faced by his students in Nepal. Let's jump to the interview. Dr. Luitel, thank you for joining us uh, today on the, on the podcast. Uh, if we could maybe just jump back to to your early days, how, how did you how did you get into to math and teaching? You're you're a math teacher by by training. What was sort of the inspiration there? Uh, thank you, Ryan, for the question, and thank you for having me in your podcast. Actually, you know, when I remember my uh, school days, especially in primary school, I was not very good at math. I, I have been a language person, you know, since my schooling and I love, I would like the stories, poems and all sorts of those genre, apart from, you know, uh, outside of STEAM genre. It was uh, my grade sixth, I think my grade six when I was, I would say around 10, 11 years old. My eldest brother, uh, who is no more, was a teacher, was a school teacher. And he was very good at math, actually. Um, he could not study uh, beyond matriculation because of the condition um, of, you know, in our family. He had to provide, he had to look after because we were around, we were eight in, in numbers, actually. Who, um, sons and four daughters and we we uh, we are basically you know from farming background so my eldest brother was a teacher in a local school and he was worried somehow that's how i felt you know in about my performance in mathematics so i think it was about decimal percentage ratio um proportion these mathematical concepts and I was really struggling um, about the learning of these different concepts. One of the problems for me was uh, that I could not see the connection across these, across these concepts. And my brother actually explained to me the relationship between decimal and percentage, percentage and ratio. And that's how I started liking mathematics. And I could see the connections. And gradually, when I was in grade seven, I was able to solve problems of uh, grade 10 level. Okay, so uh, that's how, you know, I think that was, the, that was the moment that I could start, I could see the connection across mathematics. So that was very helpful for me. And then in, and then I, I improved after grade six, I improved uh, mathematics, you know, and then I, I could actually help my friends inside the classroom. After my matriculation, after my grade 10, that, you know, I, because at that time, uh, in my time, 
uh, back in 1990s, um, you know, the, uh, the school would end at grade 10 and then we would go to the university. Uh, so uh, at the university, I chose mathematics and I chose educational faculty. There are a number of reasons why I chose education faculty. Actually, I opted initially. I opted science faculty because, and the, but that was very far from my uh, place. Uh, one reason, reason number two, it was a time of you know this uh, movement, uh, people's movement uh, uh, for multi-party democracy. So uh, I felt, you know, my family felt that it is unsafe to send. Uh, far from uh, from our place, so I opted for education faculty and I chose mathematics as the major. And then I, I you know, I didn't have a big dream when I was doing uh, mathematics at my certificate level. What I wanted, all I wanted, was a school teacher because I saw the scarcity of math teachers. So I wanted to go back to my school and I would be a math teacher. So I I developed passion to become a teacher. So I started, uh, you know, um, doing mathematics, doing mathematical problem, and I was good at problem solving. You know, in my university, in my certificate level of study, we didn't have uh, qualified teachers as well. They were just bachelor's pass. They didn't have master's degree. So we struggled actually to a great extent because they wouldn't do, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know mathematics that well. So we try to, uh, you know, consult other persons. We try to consult persons outside of our university. So uh, we, we started that way. And I was a little bit bright, academically bright, and I would help my friends to learn mathematics, to excel mathematics. And in the meantime, I started tutoring, you know, started home tuition, and then I taught private tutoring, and then I taught uh, many kids around, uh, around uh, my place and then that also helped me develop confidence in mathematics. Mm. So in bachelor's, uh, I did the same actually. I excelled uh, in mathematical contents and I was not very much good at pedagogical side though, although I chose mathematics faculty and that continued until my master's. And in the meantime, I taught several schools. I taught in several schools. I uh, you know, ran private tutoring sessions, and that's how I established myself as a math teacher. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's great to hear. You know, so many stories start out with an inspiration from a family member, whether it's a, a brother or like myself with with my mother. I mean, it's just it, you know, you see those uh, so often. So so thanks for for sharing that. But you know, I think think about the the next step that I'm kind of curious to hear about. You know, you we, we can read your website and, and, and read some of your work and we'll, we'll share it in our show notes. Uh, but I'm curious how you went from, or, or maybe the maturation of going from, you know, a teacher and sort of get, getting into the field to this uh, transformative paradigm that you sort of, that you talk about and okay. maybe, maybe explain like what, what is that to our listeners that might be unfamiliar and, and, and why is that important uh, for Nepal? Thank you very much, Ryan. Actually, you know, I was explaining about my, you know, my passion into uh, mathematics and mathematics education. And then in my master's, in my first master's degree in Nepal, I excelled very well in, in uh, 
mathematical content such as real analysis, algebra, topology, so on and so forth. Uh, what fascinated me about the depth of the concept, for, for example, infinity. Uh, I, I was so much engaged in developing model because students wouldn't understand infinity. So I developed some models like that were more conceptual and philosophical models. And we presented that uh, as the partial requirements in our one of our mathematics um, course, mathematics education course. And that uh, actually helped. Uh, and that, you know, I, I, I felt that, oh, I'm not just in mathematics. I'm trying to understand mathematics more philosophically, more meaningfully. It's not just the content. It is not just the problem solving, algorithmic problem solving. I would like to go in deep. Uh, I, I was sort of, uh, you know, at that time, I was also uh, very much um, uh, oriented toward more uh, Marxist philosophy. And in one of the paper I wrote, about I, I wrote a parallel between mathematics and Marxism. You know that was that was when I was doing masters. It was it was all Maveri kind of idea anyway. But I didn't pursue that further. But that was my background actually. Grew up as a you know in a very spiritual family, and influenced by some form you know these forms of alternative or I would say resistant politics because Nepal was was absolute monarchy during my school time and then we were against of that kind of rule and during the multi-party system uh, that also influenced not as a political activist but as a as a, as a teacher as, a, as an educator so that pursuit led me to this transformative learning actually when I was doing my second master's at Brooklyn University, I met um, uh, Professor Peter Taylor as my mentor um, in 2002. And then I gradually started thinking because, you know, one of the coursework that I did was curriculum theory. And in that, we had to study Habermas. And then this Habermasian idea, when I actually read Habermasian idea initially, I feel that this is very much about myself, about my practice. Because Habermas would talk about, you know, a more emancipatory, practical and emancipatory language, where uh, we would make our, uh, you know, discourse uh, people friendly, more communicative. But what I was taught earlier that mathematics is for a select field. And Habermas challenged that. I would say how, through Habermasian idea, I was able to challenge that. So it's not just mathematics for a select few, but mathematics and science should be for all if you are to talk about school education. So that actually set my thinking. It was back in 2002. Because of my background, um, you know, uh, somewhat, you know, background as, a, as, a, as an activist during my school education, and then gradually as a, as a left-leaning educator, more left-leaning, you know. And I, I found my voice when I went through Habermas for the first time. And then I read Freire, that was also very, very helpful. And also I went through philosophies, Eastern and Western philosophies, and especially Buddhism and Vedanta uh, in Hinduism and also Zionism, the liberatorian perspective of Eastern wisdom tradition, um, 
helped me to understand myself as an educator and also uh, as a person, as a, as a citizen, citizen of Nepal and beyond. So learning is not just about, you know, uh, acquiring knowledge. It's not just about knowledge acquisition. It's not just about, uh, you know, developing some skills, discrete skills, but it is about questioning ourselves, questioning our beliefs, values, uh, assumptions. So that's how I convinced myself that this is a way to go if we are to promote better math learning, better science learning. So that actually, this is how I came to transformative learning. And the other thing is that, you know, with my, uh, you know, colleague, mentor, and my supervisor, Professor Peter Taylor, um, we uh, actually started in our classroom, we would use critical self-reflection as a pedagogical tool. And that was the, that was another defining moment that how we could actually implement, you know, transformative learning into our own practice. How can I see my weaknesses? How can I see my weaknesses? And that weaknesses is reproduced through this system. Because me, myself is not an individual as well. Well, I, I'm an individual, but this individual, this individuality has been set by many forces. No, the systemic forces, seen and unseen forces. So that actually, that, uh, you know, helped me to develop, to practice the, the philosophical side of, of uh, emancipatory interest of Habermas. So this is how I, I came to a transformative learning. Yeah, that's... I one thing that struck me by your what you just said but then also looking at some of your work is is how you you know you you brought over things from from east to west also cross disciplinary from cultural studies educational mm -hmm. different educational mm -hmm. uh, philosophies uh and then also what i find interesting is is you're you're studying mathematics uh and, and you're mm -hmm. working in the world of mathematics and i think a lot of us might expect maybe a a, a quantitative researcher to connect there, but you're yes. bringing over yeah. an, another a paradigm yeah. of, of qualitative research and, and yeah. ethnography, yeah. autoethnography. Can you maybe talk about some of some of those tensions or, or what maybe draws you more to uh, to, to that field of study or, or um, you know, some of the barriers that you're sort of trying, you're, you're breaking the mold, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. This is, this is a very, very important question. And I wish that you know, if I have to, if, if somebody gives me the chance to respond to this question on a daily basis, because uh, the reason is that when I was doing my masters, you know, uh, back in 2003, I wrote the thesis, um, a research project, I would say, and that was uh, that was something you know I would I would imagine when I was doing I was in uh, class grade nine and ten, um, in I, I went to a very, uh, uh, I grew up in a very rural setting. There, was, there were no transportation facilities during my uh, school time apart from, you know, our one like uh, local means. And they were not available for all as well. For example, us, just horses. They were not available to us. So all we depend, uh, depended uh, was on um, the, the our one manual labor. Uh, so, uh, but I, I was very much fascinated by the 
nature that, that we encounter on a daily basis in that rural setting. And I was, uh, as I said to you, apart from my uh, excellence in mathematics in my school education, I was equally um, good at uh, good at language-related subjects. For example, Nepali, that, that would be taught, that was the medium of instruction, but English was also taught as a separate subject. And I would excel in both. I mean, I was really good at both. And thanks to my teachers who actually helped me read more and more. I would read like, you know, um, great books in Nepal, read, written by literary uh, persons. But that went in vain during my higher education in Nepal. You know, my certificate, bachelor and master's, I never encountered that kind of work because it was all about mathematics. And that mathematics was very dry. Okay? So I, I was always looking for the connection between this human side of our being and becoming and the, the nature of mathematics that we encounter. And thankfully, during my master's, when I talked to my uh, supervisor, uh, uh, mentor, and colleague now, colleague, Professor Peter Teller, and said, no, what about math mathematics? It's not just math education, but mathematics. And that was, that actually, and then I, he lent me uh, some book, and then I started studying, you know, like the, the book on the philosophy of mathematics by Paul Ornest and, and other classic writers as well. And that was, that was so amazing for me because there were different nature of mathematics, mathematic, dialogical nature of mathematics, nature of mathematics. And that actually attracted me in, in the second day. And then I started sharing my research idea. So this is what I wanted. Actually, I wanted to do so more philosophical inquiry. And Peter asked me to write a narrative of what I think about math. I wrote something, I forgot what I wrote, but I wrote something uh, uh, in a very subjective manner, in a, in a, in a very, very much narrative style. And I said, no, no, you, you should not be doing philosophical inquiry in a conventional sense. This will be all objective and, uh, you know, you will be, you'll be you'll, you, you have to consume other ideas. I think you do more of narrative, do write narrative about mathematics, how, how you feel about mathematics. And then in this process, I started writing. I, I was so captivated by that writing style because I started reading uh, Max Van Manen, um, the, the, the scholar in the field of hermeneutic phenomenology. Then I started reading, uh, you know, um, Zuni Saldana and other, you know, famous uh, authors who would, who, would, who, who would write about, uh, you know, narrative, uh, autoethnography, ethnography, and not the old form of ethnography. They would say new ethnography, and that would, that would blend literary genre with the with the social science genre. Then I then in my project actually uh, developed out of this new cultivated interest. The first year in two thousand two, I was very much influenced by um, Freire, Jacques Mezero, um, and critical math education group. And second year in 2003, I was very much influenced by um, all sorts of ideas, uh, the methodological ideas, hermeneutic phenomenology. And I started reading Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, um, and this, uh, you know, Lacan, and so on and so forth. So that opened up 
you know, new, new kind of uh, world. And then I, my project developed, you know, now I've heard that, oh, these meta narratives, grand narratives are, are, are not very much helpful. So I need to start from myself. So I became, I would say, you know, back in 2003, I was extremely postmodernist. I would, uh, I would fight with every mathematics educator, science educator who would confront with me at that time. So I was very much informed about postmodernism. So my project, my master's project grew out of that, you know, legacy. And uh, I wrote uh, something like, you know, my particular journey. Uh, and I didn't write a research question. I didn't, I, I didn't have a research question. I had in my proposal, but in thesis, I never, in project report, I didn't write. And my supervisor was so helpful. And then he said, yes, whatever you would like to do, you have to justify. And I came up my research question toward the end of my project. So that project is also available um, on the website. And uh, that was the beginning of my scholarly thinking in transformative learning. I would, that was, at that time, I didn't say transformative learning because what happened, my first year, I, I still found that, you know, Mejiro and Freire, somewhat grand, you know, the proponent of grand narratives. So I sort of use more of a postmodernist frame. And that was quite fascinating. That liberated, that liberated in many ways that I would argue, oh, two plus two can be five, can be 10. Because if you have 0, 1, 2, 3, just these numbers, then 2 plus 2 would be 10. Because there won't be 4. So I developed this kind of argument. And I started looking into the multiplicities within mathematics. So I started reading more about mathematics uh, as not something given, but that which can be constructed, developed. So what happened if mathematics was developed, developed differently? What happened, what would happen if mathematics was developed um, as per Lobachevsky, not as per the Euclid? So I would start think that way. That gave me a new space. And after my master's, I came back to Nepal and I, would, I developed a master's program with the help of other teacher educators. And in the meantime, I became a little bit shocked. You know, I was very much critical of one form of mathematics. I would even challenge them. But, you know, I, I developed some pragmatic ground and I got a scholarship back in, in 2006 and I had plenty of experience in the field. I developed a master's program and I went again for a PhD. And during my PhD proposal, a concept during, uh, in, uh, the, when I was developing concept note, I again talked to Peter Taylor. And then he said, yeah, something you are very interested in philosophy, but you might think of small p philosophy not capital P philosophy, small p philosophy. And then he said, I'm very much interested in philosophy studies and you, your master's project is also very much driven by that kind of thing. You might look into that one. And then I was also very much interested because we wrote a paper. By then we wrote a paper on, uh, that was published in 2007, but the genesis of that paper goes back to 2004. And that was about uh, the Sonai and Pseudosphere. Uh, published by Pulse Studies of Science Education. And that Sanai is a, is a Nepali musical instrument. And then my argument was that that actually resembles um, pseudosphere, which is not a sphere, but it is a pseudosphere. 
So that pseudosphere would shape like hyperbola, you know, the surface, curved surface. So, and then that I wrote that paper and Peter also co-authored and we published in 2007, it was accepted. Uh, and we also presented in several conferences, these, these ideas we presented. And in 2006, I actually wrote my proposal and I got the funding from Cotton University, went back and then we started discussing and in the proposal write-up, I thought that I would do, you know, field work, a little bit of field work, and also um, do autoethnography, uh, ethnograph with ethnographic component. Uh, I did that, but what happened over the period of time, uh, my um, sort of, I thought, uh, I, I, I would not think that there was that much this component of transformative learning in there, in my proposal, very little more of cultural studies perspective, more of ethnographic perspective. But over the period of time, um, you know, I became, I need to be pragmatic, not just, you know, deconstructionist, postmodernist. And then I also read a lot about postmodernism. I found that there are different forms of postmodernism. One is constructivist postmodernism, the other is deconstructive postmodernism. So I felt that in my, in my version of 2003, or in my 2003 version, I was more very much deconstructive postmodernist. And I'm a teacher educator, and I need to make a space. So I need to look for alternatives. I can't simply say this is, this is not good, or this cannot work, or, um, you know, I'm not just, I should not be just critiquing uh, what is there. I need to engage in the dominant discourse, and I, I need to uh, look for alternatives. So that's how, again, I came back to Mejiro and Freire. And I came back to Buddha, I came back to Shankaracharya. So it's not just Freire and Meijiro when I was reading in 2002. And I felt that, you know, we need to connect with our culture. So then I sort of started blending these two. And then we, and in 2000, by the end of 2006, when my candidacy was approved, we started running with my, my supervisor, myself and colleagues from Africa, and uh, uh, other parts of the world, other parts of Asia, like Indonesia, we formed a group called Transformative Education Research Group within Curtin uh, University. And we started running seminars every two weeks. And I started presenting, other fellow friends also presented them. That's how we developed. So, uh, of course, Peter uh, started talking about, you know, transformative learning. Initially, he would talk more about culture studies, but why we need culture studies? Because we work in education. We need a framework. So some, some, some helpful framework. I won't say um, that we need unchanging framework. I would say we need a framework which can help us you know, improve our school education, our university education, or our teacher education. So we came up with uh, that transformative education, uh, transformative learning and transformative education research. Uh, so in this way, I arrived at transformative uh, learning. You know, I started using transformative learning as one of the um, major theoretical perspective in my research. And that was, that would go well with Habermas as well, because Habermas would say that the highest form of knowledge that is produced is through critical self-reflection, because that would make people autonomous. That would make people free Free not in a libertinist perspective, free in terms of doing our limitations, 
knowing the systemic limitation, knowing the distortion that happens through us, by us, for us. So one of the powerful tools was or is critical self-reflection. So that came again in my doctoral study, and that came in a prominent way. And also I started reading Eastern philosophies as well. For example, as I said, Buddha. So in Buddhist philosophy, one of the ways is to deconstruct ourselves so that we decenter ourselves and we become, uh, you know, we, we can expand ourselves. So Vedanta would say the same thing in a different way. We expand ourselves so that we can connect with Brahman. Brahman would be the, the, that inclusive space. Uh, the emptiness in Buddhism would be that inclusive space. So, and then also the, you know, several other, other authors, the, the masters and sages from the East and West would refer to that becoming, which would be liberated, which would serve more, if not many, if not all, serve many, if not all. So that uh, kind of somewhat ethical altruistic perspective also led me towards uh, this, this space of transformation. Right, right. What, what I love about that story is just the, the constant learning and, and bringing in, you know, you say, okay, I have this idea and then I discovered something else and I added this sort of philosophy and just sort of keep, keep building your, your knowledge and your philosophy and, and using real world you know, connections that you're, that you're facing. And then maybe that you're, that you're sounds like your students are facing. Uh, and that's like maybe the, the next question uh, you said, you're, you're a teacher educator at a Kathmandu university school of education. Uh, who are your students? So what are they going out and doing in the world? Like what, what are maybe the, the barriers that they're facing? You know, yeah. when I came back after, you know, 2009 and I was, um, very much, uh, you know, uh, committed to develop more programs. And then uh, we had masters in maths education, and then we started MPIL. Um, and then one of the goals of our program, you know, they, they would develop activism. So activism uh, to improve maths class, to improve their teaching. So gradually, uh, you know, what happened uh, with my students, of course, there were a lot of res resistance initially. Um, back in 2010, you know, there were resistance even in my department, in my school. You know, the professors would not agree with uh, the methodology that I would introduce. They would not agree with the pedagogy that I would introduce. They would not agree with the approach that I would take. So it was, it was, a, it was a, a quite a struggle for about uh, two, three years until I became associate professor. <laughs> because I was assistant professor and you know the you know, plight of the voiceless uh, faculty and especially in Asian, this positivistic um, feudalism. I would say positivistic feudalism because the hierarchy is so mammoth and within that hierarchy, they have many of these professors were studied in the West and they did, they worked under positivistic paradigm, quantitative paradigm, and they, they imported that knowledge and unreflectively, they were actually, actually they would position themselves in, in a hierarchy. But in the meantime, what was happening in Nepal was because of the new regime, this federal system is, was being developed. 
uh, you know, and then Republican system, like the monarchy was thrown out, thrown out and then uh, this more democratic uh, governance was uh, being practiced. And that actually raised the consciousness of, of our students as well. So I became very much, uh, you know, uh, I was liked by my, my students gradually, gradually. And uh, with my students who completed university, went to the school, and they worked in public and, you know, private system both, they faced difficulties in initial days, you know, they would develop project works and they would implement restacks inside the mathematics classroom. And there would be a lot of resistance from principal, headmaster, and also fellow colleagues who would not be exposed these, to these ideas. So that went on, we continued, and then, um, uh, we started MPhil in 2011, and then I went for postdoc for about six months in Portugal, uh, thanks to the funding from the uh, European Union. And then I came back. We started MPhil again, and that actually developed uh, my sort of you know horizon. Not just master MPhil in our part of the world is a bridge between masters and PhD, and uh, we would focus more on research, and then. A student started producing research and uh, they were examined by, you know, uh, people in my network outside of Nepal and that gradually, uh, you know, validated my, you know, process of bec becoming a scholar. And in the meantime, I started publishing uh, my publication, you know, uh, because when I, I was uh, working in the department in 2019, 11, you know, there were not much publications from my department because the system they had earlier was not very much publication based. And we started changing students started publishing and I started co-authoring, I, start, I continued my publication and, and also presentations at the conference. So that actually helped me, you know, establish myself. And um, after, and then I started influencing policies as well. And that actually gave me the voice and the methodology is the non-positivistic methodology, ethnography, autoethnography, narrative, phenomenology. They became established methods in the next, you know. When I joined in 2010, that was a distant dream at that time. Uh, but after, you know, three, four years, because, you know, I persistently helped the students to develop proposals. So this way, uh, we, we develop a ground. And then I started because once I became associate professor, that gave me the authority to supervise students. Then I started supervising PhD students and I started producing PhD students. And that also established me. I, I gained more knowledge about supervision, being pragmatic with people who would come from the other paradigm. So in this way, I started, you know, developing my identity as a teacher, educator and a scholar. Uh, so now uh, and and we also started organizing conferences and in that we start invited we would invite practitioners we would invite those who would uh, employ our students you know and then they saw our practices and they started giving us feedback that oh your your students are pretty good at, at work they do all sorts of you know they are creative initially the resistant some of were very resistant about these new forms of pedagogy, but gradually they, they become very positive. 
and they became positive. They started contact me, contact me if I can send my students to their school, and if I have you know math teachers uh, in in contact so that I can send to them. And gradually we felt, and then I started working with engineering folks, uh, folks from School of Management, School of Arts, in terms of helping them develop methodology, research projects, so on and so forth. And and then what are, we felt in 2016, 2017 that actually it's not just math teachers. We need to work with STEM, both STEM uh, people. And by then, I actually um, I have developed around you know 10, 15 um, students who completed uh, MPhil degree by 16, 17. Uh, I would say not 10, 15. Six six students completed MPhil. Uh, on in math education, but there were other um, areas where I have actually supervised to the completion. So um, then I I felt that no, it's not just maths. It's science teachers. It's other areas like engineering and whole STEM areas. And we start we look we looked into uh, the possible um, research uh, uh, funding, and then we actually applied to um, to NORAC, and we received one funding. And through a collaboration with uh, Tribhuvan University, another university in Nepal, and also a university in Norway, uh, University of Life Sciences. So then we, and then we didn't develop STEAM by then, but, uh, you know, as a program, but we developed a research program. We started working in that field. Uh, and then we converted our math department into STEAM education department. And uh, this paradigm that you were talking, you know, this uh, transformative paradigm was very much suited to this STEAM, where we include STEAM professionals, STEAM teachers. Okay? Now I have, um, I, I com complete, I supervised 22 students to the completion, not this all, and not in uh, math education, in different areas, areas of education. And also, I have, uh, I would count around 30 to 35 MPL students I supervise. Uh, and now I have 18 um, students working with me currently in MPL level. They have coursework and a little bit of research component, and uh, seven, eight PhD students in the area, in, in the area of STEAM education. And we have a research site in, you know, 28. Uh, I would say not 28, 40 kilometers away from my place. We have a, a public school there and we have developing STEAM, STEAM pedagogy through the use of school garden. So my students, uh, you know, they do go to the field, they demonstrate, you know, it's, it's more a participatory, transformatory pedagogy they, they develop in collaboration with the school teachers. You know, so and then they sort of generate narratives out of their experience of working in that. So in this way, you know, I I have been uh, now I have a team of around twenty five to thirty students and faculty, and then we we have almost you know every other week we have presentations. Uh, in the research community uh, and also some of my students are in the us they are doing phd they completed MPhil here 
one completed PhD from Norway recently. So yeah, this is this is the the situation right now in terms of productivity. Yeah, we are keep going. Um, it's not just me. Now I have a team, and the team works. Uh, you know. To, to improve education system. Now, there is another impact uh, in the ministry as well. Uh, the ministry has introduced integrated curriculum and I am the subject committee chair of the integrated curriculum. So these are some of the benefits. Now, we, initially it was difficult to make our message heard, uh, uh, heard and now, you know, it's like we, we are, uh, uh, you know, we, we tend to be the ministry. You know, in terms of ideas, in terms of perspective, of course, in terms of practice, there has to be done. There has to be done a lot because schools, the pedagogy, the system is very much convinced. But in terms of desire to change in, among the stakeholders is very high. Although they don't know how, we need to bring them into the system. We need to make them critically reflective that the same process that I went through Otherwise, you know, transformation cannot be possible by imposing somebody's so-called expert. You know, that's not a, that's that that is not how I develop. You know, I develop. Of course, we need a mentor, but we need to go through the process. So, which is a painful process. It's, it's not that easy process. You know, in a critical self-reflection is not easy. You know, I have encountered many difficulties with the students who are not able to reflect critically. They think that if they reflect critically, they will be shamed. You know, they will, they will be ashamed. They feel vulnerable. It's, these are the issues. But anyway, we need, you know, we, 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 if we show examples, I think people are, are able to, educators are able to reflect critically, take courage to change their practice. Mm. So that's what I, I have to say. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you have... You know, you're, you're connected with students, you're connected with uh, the ministry, just all, you know, from top down. So it looks like we're uh, out of time for the interview. Uh, I know we, we could have we could have chatted a lot of other things. I know you have the, the journal of transformative practice praxis, which will uh, which we'll put in our uh, show notes as well. And we'll link it uh, for uh, listeners that are interested. But uh, Dr. Ball uh, Chandra Luisel, thank you for joining us and, and sharing your experience. It, it was fantastic. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having And this concludes our Kicks EAP podcast, which is released every first Wednesday of the month. Of course, the opinions expressed on the Kicks EAP podcast are solely those of the host and the guest. The Kicks EAP podcast is made possible by Kicks, which stands for Knowledge and Innovation Exchange. Kicks is an initiative of the Global Partnership for Education. Globally, Kicks is administered by the International Development Research Center in Canada. NORAG in Geneva hosts one of the four regional hubs of Kicks. Thanks for listening. Find us on the NORAG or GPE Kicks websites. You can subscribe to the Kicks EAP podcast, newsletter, and webinar series, and also learn about Kicks global or regional projects. Additionally, you can subscribe directly on Spotify or SoundCloud to receive notifications of the new monthly podcast episodes.